I speak to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. There is a line that has haunted me for years, showing up again and again at the oddest moments. The world will be saved by beauty. The world will be saved by beauty. Prince Mishkin, a character in Dostoevsky's novel, The Idiot, says this, and it would be easy to dismiss. He's a sickly aristocrat whom others dismiss as a fool, but we readers recognize him as a kind of Christ figure because even in the grips of epilepsy, he can say this, the world will be saved by beauty. That line has been rattling around my head since last fall when we began to discuss in earnest the replacement of our windows. It's going to be a multi-year expensive project and it too can be easy to dismiss imagining that there are a million other needs in the world than stained glass windows. And yet, I can't stop thinking about Prince Mishkin and his faith in beauty. And then this spring, a new biography of the sainted Dorothy Day was released and its title, The World Will Be Saved by Beauty. It was one of Day's favorite quotations, a fiercely practical and religious woman who devoted her life to living among and serving the poorest of the poor, yet this beauty was her guiding light. It's such a compelling statement and yet it feels paradoxical. After all, how can our mess of a world filled with so much sorrow and violence, poverty and meanness, how can all of that be saved, be redeemed by the beautiful? How can beauty save the world when we seem so intent on marring our natural surroundings, on harming one another, on too often creating base and shallow art and entertainment? And yet, and yet, doesn't hope rise in your breast when you hear those words, beauty can save the world? For who among us doesn't feel their spirit soar when catching a glimpse of a hawk soaring overhead, drafting on the wind, or catch their breath when they come to the edge of the Grand Canyon or the foot of the Rockies or the shore of Lake Michigan? I know when I wake in the morning and I step outside with my coffee and I see the rabbits mom and a couple teenagers hopping in my garden, I am astounded with joy, too happy to shoo them away from nibbling my hostas. Or walking in the woods and stumbling upon a pond where dragonflies skate over the water and a lone frog poised at the surface sounding out his song. Nature is filled with the glory of God, and how can that beauty not save us? But it's not only God's good creation 
Poetry lifts my heart and gorgeous music, our anthems here so often makes my soul soar. Georgia O'Keeffe's clouds, Mark Chagall's windows, Ansem Kiefer's massive canvases all set me back on my heels in awe. And what about you? What beautiful thing makes your life worth living? Where do you see the glory of God alive around you? On Thursday, I was in Pittsburgh visiting my dad and on the way to see him, I looked over on a city street and there in a parking lot were two men. All of the sudden, one of them threw back his head, his beautiful black skin shining in the sun, mouth open, laughing, joy spreading across his face and down his body, and I wanted to pull my car over right there, jump out, and join them. There was God's glory. And you coming forward for communion, faces shining like the sun. My soul is pierced by your beauty. All of these are glimpses of the divine, of our God who is indeed beautiful and the source of all beauty. And isn't that what Jesus provides at the transfiguration? himself so changed, shining like the sun, his clothes dazzling white like those of angels, so beautiful that he is, in fact, somewhat frightening to Peter, James, and John, just as Moses was years before with his face shining like the sun. The disciples certainly are aware that Jesus is something special. They know that already. They've seen him cure the sick and feed the 5,000 and teach with those odd, compelling words and his beatitudes and parables. Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah, but then the disciples are much less interested in his prediction that he must suffer and die. And we're not surprised. After all, how can they understand such mystery? Why wouldn't they focus instead on the good stuff, the teaching, the miracles, and be happy with Jesus just as a teacher, a leader? But Jesus isn't interested in that too small version of what he's up to. So he takes his leaders up to the mountain to pray, and there he reclaims his time from their misunderstandings, making clear that God has more in mind, that God is more glorious than they can imagine. And there Jesus reveals the glory of God in his very being. Heaven reaches down to earth and all changes in an instant as Jesus reveals to them the sheer beauty of God. And even though they were tired, the disciples had stayed awake. They had paid attention and in that instant they glimpse God. First they were afraid. Then Peter tries to normalize the situation by suggesting he should set up camp for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. 
But finally, after entering the cloud of God's presence, they do what we all should do when faced with piercing beauty. They fall silent. Pondering these things in their hearts. We live in a noisy time right now. There's lots to distract us. There are very few silent places and we are bombarded by images from screens playing wherever we go. And we're not just distracted. We are actively confronted with ugliness as we continue to plunder our environment are assaulted by vulgar rhetoric, even from our politicians, as violence masquerades, as entertainment, as we hear the details of yet another bombing, yet another police shooting. It's easy to miss moments of beauty, hard to pay attention to see the inbreaking of God. It's tempting in the face of all that is wrong, all that needs fixing, to think that beauty is a luxury, that we should spend our time doing the practical work of finding solutions to societal ills, and of course we should. But without beauty, without glimpses of the grandeur of God, what will lure us on? Why continue to work for the good, to reach out to one another, to help transfigure our world into the beloved community when it can all seem impossible? Fear might motivate us for a while, but it only goes so far, and the same goes for duty. We need something to elevate our souls, to give us dreams. As Antoine de Saint-Exupéry wrote and Helene Russell puts at the end of her emails, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work. Rather, teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. Teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. For what good is it to know how to pound a nail into wood if we don't know why it matters? The transfiguration is the why for all the what's and the how's that we do. We are lured on by our longing for beauty, our longing to have our souls lift, our longing for the divine, our God who is beauty itself. We long for that beauty and it is all around us, the divine piercing the mundane, threaded through our quotidian lives. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. That's how the Jesuit Gerard Manley Hopkins begins his sonnet, God's Grandeur. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil.
and if the world is shot through with God's beauty, then all we have to do is pay attention. For in looking, we will see. In listening, we will hear. And all creation, animals and plants, rocks and trees, mountain and stream, friends and enemies will reveal God's grandeur. For Christ's beautiful face plays in 10,000 places, luring us on. Beauty will save the world. Indeed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.